couple weeks ago, we talked about the priority that God gives to love him. That, man, God created this idea of love. That first it starts with him and it begins to inform every area of our life. Sometimes we confuse love with ideas that are human or man-made where it's like, well, I, love is, is, is marriage, having a soulmate. It's you complete me. But really, really what we realize over time is a person can't complete and fulfill us, but we need something outside of ourselves that actually begins to inform our life, to bring change to a world that if we were left to our own devices, we'd just see things run rampant, which we do many times in our culture. But we are called to be people that push back and lead with the love that first comes from a love for God as he showers over us with his love. The second thing we looked at, it was last week, was to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and we, we looked through the scriptures and really defined what, what does it mean to be a neighbor or what is a neighbor? Who, who are we aiming at? And we defined through the biblical narrative that a neighbor can be defined, anyone and everyone you have a chance to meet, regardless of their lifestyle and choices. Everyone's a candidate. There's not an exclusivity when it comes to God and his message and who he's for. So when we're called to be informed by God love, God's love, but we're also to extend that love to our neighbor who really represents everyone, regardless of their lifestyle and cho choices. And this week we're going to focus in on Jesus' last words during his time on earth. We're going to zoom in because his last words really help to inform the greatness of of what we as human beings are truly called to do as we live during this point in human history. But before we do that, I thought it'd be fun to look at what, we're, what I found on the internet as 25 of the top most famous last words. So we're gonna look at a few of them because last words, man, what an interesting topic. It could be so morbid, but when we think about, man, like literally this life doesn't last forever. What, what type of words were uttered by people when they breathed their last breath, right? So let's look at the first one, number 25. This one is, I can't sleep. This was, this was the last words of Scottish novelist and author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barrie, said as he laid on his deathbed in England. Number 24, Thomas Jefferson, dot, dot, dot. John Adams, the first vice president of the United States, uttered the very moment he breathed his last breath. Number 23, pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose said Queen Mary Antoinette, who was convicted of treason and was sentenced to die by guillotine with her husband, King Louis XVI, during the height of the French Revolution. Number 22, is it not meningitis? American novelist Louisa May Alcott uttered these last words on her deathbed, believing that meningitis was what she was ill with. Ironically, mercury poisoning was the cause which she acquired when she was treated for typhoid fever, typhoid fever years earlier. Number 21, please don't let me fall said Mary Elizabeth Jenkins Surratt moments before she was hung to death in public on July 7th, 1865 because of her involvement in a conspiracy to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. Number, 12, number 20. <laughs> hey, fellas, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. These were the last words of James Donald French, a murderer who was convicted on August 10th, 1966 and sentenced to be electrocuted after he killed one of his cellmates in jail. Number 19, this is the last of earth, I am content. These are the last words of John Quincy Adams, former president of the U.S., pronounced these words on his deathbed, February 21st, 1848, seconds before his death. Number 18, to the strongest was the cry of Alexander the Great minutes before his death when he was asked who he thought was worthy enough to succeed him in taking commands in his empire. Number 17, you, no, you certainly can't, were the wor last words of President John F. Kennedy in response to Governor John Connolly's remark, 
you certainly cannot say that the people of Dallas haven't given you a nice welcome, Mr. President, moments before he was shot. Number 16, home to the palace to die. A great leader, Alexander II of Russia, uttered these words after his guards found his body under the seat of his carriage after an assassination plotted against him. The guards quickly responded by bringing him home, and he died hours later. Number 15, put out the bloody cigarette, were the last words of Hector Hugh Monroe, an officer who fought during the First World War, afraid that their opponents might locate them through the smoke his co-officer was smoking. It was rather the remark that the opponents heard and tracked them to their hole and killed them. Number 14, these are my last words, and I am certain that my sacrifice will not be in vain. I am certain that, at the very least, it will be a moral lesson that will punish felony, cowardice, and treason, said military man Salvador Allende in front of his fellow military men after being bombarded by opposing military forces. After giving this speech, he pulled out a gun from his jacket and shot himself in the head. Number 13, I pray you to bear me witness that I meet my fate like a brave man, were the last words of Major John Andre when he was proven to be a British spy and hanged to death. Number 12, I'm going away tonight. These were the last five words of Godfather of Soul, James Brown, shortly before he died of pneumonia on the morning of Christmas 2006. Number 11, I shall be with Christ and that is enough. Chemical scientist Michael Faraday said when he was asked by his wife what his occupation would probably be in the next life on the brink of his death. Number 10, don't you dare ask God to help me. Joan Crawford, highly regarded as one of the most spectacular movie actresses of her time, got cancer in her 70s. After being bedridden for years, she refused to seek medical care, and two nurses offered prayer beside her bed, noticing her quick decline. Hence her response, followed by her breathing her last breath. Number nine, tomorrow I shall no longer be here, said Nostradamus, lying on his deathbed. Number eight, I'd rather be fishing, were the words of murderer Jimmy L. Glass before he died of electrocution on June 12, 1987 in Louisiana. Number seven, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Distinguished Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart said while lying on his deathbed in his home after gathering his family, saying goodbye, and dying shortly after. Number six, hit the water, hit the water, hit the water. While riding a helicopter, American rock musician and actress Jane Dornacker was giving a live traffic report for a national radio station when the aircraft plunged into the waters. While on air, her listeners heard this followed by a loud crash, signaling her instantaneous death. Number five, you have won, O Galileans. These were the final words of Roman Emperor and Constantine descendant Julian when he hired to quash the original endorsement to Christianity of the Roman Empire during battle. Number four, do you hear the rain? Do you hear the rain? Seven-year-old pilot Jessica Dubroff uttered these final words to her mother as she was running her own single-engine propeller aircraft somewhere in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Seconds after she took off with her father and instructor aboard, the plane suffered from an engine breakdown and crashed. Number three, I'm about to, or I'm going to, die. Either expression is correct. French Grammarian Dominique Bouhars proved even until the point of his death he has seamless grammar. He uttered these words to his family on his deathbed in 1902. Number two, are you all right? Australian actress and singer Belinda Emmett pronounced her last words in November 2006 as her sister wept beside her deathbed, seeing Belinda suffering from severe symptoms as her body finally succumbed to her illness of, illness of breast cancer. And then finally, number one, I am perplexed. Satan Get out. Satanist and heroin addict Aleister Crowley was believed to have uttered these words while caught in the midst of a pool of baffling thoughts brought on by his addiction to drugs. These are last words. These are really sobering because I think instantly we, we get our places, our minds to a place of realizing we don't live forever. 
But it's interesting also to see, see what's on the imperfect minds of humans as they transition from this life into the next life. And this morning, we're going to look at something that the Bible considers to be great. It's called the Great Commission because it is. It's Jesus' last words on earth. And once again, as the perfect human being, what did, he, what did he say? What were his last words before he transitioned into the heavenly realm, right? So we're going to look at that in Matthew chapter 28. I had you guys turn there. And this is what Jesus said. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, speaking of his disciples at the time, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to seek you. Lord, we're thankful that your word says that you give us abundant life. And sometimes in life, we have question marks surrounding on, man, what's our, my next step? What am I supposed to do? What, man, I, got, I, I don't know the direction of my life. Lord, we're thankful that, Lord, you give direction, Lord. You, you choose to be among us. You choose to go before us. And you choose to lead us. So this morning, would we be led by you, Lord? Would we, in areas where maybe our minds and our hearts have gotten off track, Lord, would you be the GPS to get us back on track with you, Lord, and what you see and how you see our lives and what you say about us? So, Lord, we're just thankful that you consider us your beloved this morning. Lord, we're loved and cherished by you first and foremost. And, Lord, would we learn to grow closer to you out of that love this morning? In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Okay, so these are the words that are known as the Great Commission. And we've been talking about great is greater than good. As Jesus' last words, this piece of, of, of the gospel of Matthew, and in other places, the same reference, is, is really highlighted as, as a, a place of, of supreme, as a place of this is great. This is a great thing. This is the great commission. And it's this simple command that starts with the word go. But here's what I know. When it comes to human history and when it comes to the history of the church, a lot of people define go differently. I think about my time living in the Los Angeles area. Every time I, w I drove down Hollywood Boulevard, you would see people with pickets, with signs that basically were telling people that they were going to hell because of their behavior. With a lot of different verses that basically made it clear that God doesn't like you, God hates sin, you're a sinner, and there's a destination for you. And they'd have, you know, their, their bullhorns, and they'd be singing and screaming at people, um, trying to be, take the, the approach in translating what go means for them in a way that was very aggressive. We've seen that. You've seen that. When I, when I tell that story, some of you relate to that because you've seen it before. Some of you get really offended. Some of you begin to tense up because of the way that that made you feel emotionally. Now, I feel like there's another scale of what the word go means within the kind of the church world. And I think it, it's best represented by a quote by St. Fran Francis of Assisi, the Italian Catholic preacher. He said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words talking about God's message and using it as a place of action, so it's this almost active silence in the background. Um, and when necessary, use words. So we have this, you know, the scale of, man, aggression to the scale of kind of just being more passive. So what do we do? Because go, once again, can be translated. If we want to make a difference, if we want to make a great difference in this world, what does go mean? So this morning, we're going to look at the scriptures, and we're going to figure out, our goal this morning is discovering the biblical viewpoint of going. Because if Jesus prioritized this as great, we got to be people that understand what kind of posture do we take when we go, if we're going to be sent people. 
if we're going to be people that take God for, for his word and actually follow through with this great command that he's given people on earth. So we're going to formulate this through an article that I read called this, What Non-Christians Want Christians to Hear by John Shore. Read the, read the intro really quickly. It says, by way of researching my book, I'm okay, you're not, the message we're sending non-believers and why we should stop, I posted a notice on Craigslist sites all over the country asking non-Christians to send me any short personal statement they would like Christians to read. Specifically, I wrote, I'd like to hear how you feel about being on the receiving end of the efforts of Christian evangelicals to convert you. I want to be very clear that this is not a Christian bashing book. It's coming from a place that only means well for everyone. Thanks. Within three days, I had an inbox of over 300 emails from non-Christians across the country. Reading them was one of the more depressing experiences of my life. I had expected their cumulative sentiment to be one of mostly anger. But if you boil down into a single feeling, what was most often expressed in the non-believer statements, it would be, why do Christians hate us so much? Below is a pretty random sample of the statements non-Christians sent me, each of which I used in the book. If you're a Christian, they make for a mighty saddening read, or they certainly should. Anyway, so this morning we're going to look at a biblical strategy of what it means to go through the lens of some of these quotes that those on the outside or consider themselves to be on the outside of this family called the church would portray in terms of the posture many times, unfortunately, followers of Jesus sometimes take. So we're going to look at five things this morning on five ways to go. And, and number one, if you're taking notes, this, this first one. Number one, find common ground. This first guy, T.O. from Denver, he wrote, I feel that Christians have got it all wrong. It seems to me they've created the very thing Jesus was against, separatism. Very interesting. Let's look at the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. I think 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 19 through 23 really help us understand, man, is this accurate? You know, are we people that are, that's the kind of the outcome of somebody's opinion, but are, are we people, are we called to be people that make people feel in such a way? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 20, this is the Apostle Paul, a church leader, writing to the church in Corinth, which was a rowdy bunch. And this is what he writes in chapter 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under the Christ's law. He's like, okay, there's limits. Right? Like, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's, my, that's what I, who I follow, but guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in other people's worlds. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To, the win, to win the weak, I become all things to all people. Next slide there. So that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. It's so interesting to me that we have created a site for other people. And if you're a person in the room, maybe you're a guest or maybe you've felt this way. I just want to say, I see you, I relate to you, and I'm sorry. 
And as a church community, as a family represented on behalf of Jesus and his laws and what he thinks and how he sees the world, we are a church to committed to be people that get better. We are committed to be people that say, hey, we're going to take steps to make sure that we don't ever confuse people with the Jesus we worship, with the Jesus that sometimes gets portrayed for people that have gotten really lazy in their faith. It's interesting when you, you see the words of Scripture and how they run so contrary to sometimes the, the way people feel around followers of Jesus. But we're called to be people that find common ground. Find it. Rather than finding a resume of things you don't agree with, God calls us to find the very things that we can get on the same level with, have in common. And if you think that you can't find anything, here's the thing that you need to bank on. You and I were both created by a loving God. And we're both created in his image. And on that level, you can relate to anyone. God calls us to relate to people on that level rather than pointing out the differences because our job is to point people to the perfect one, Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but like I love reality television. In fact, my favorite show, uh, you guys are going to judge me, of all time is a show called Big Brother. It's airing right now on CBS. I'll give you the times. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway. This show is, is crazy because it's like your survivor, but it's like they shove a bunch of random people, like always, they always choose like the most different people around the country, put them in a house together, and they do different competitions, and then eventually like people get voted out, and there's just a lot, of, it's a social game. And it's so interesting to me because, man, this show's been on for like 20 seasons or whatever, and it's just so intriguing because it's like a social experiment. You as the viewer kind of get to see things unfold. People will make accusations, and you as the viewer are like, you're right, you're wrong. But it's interesting, somebody at the end of this wins the whole thing, somehow survives, and it's interesting because if you were to take like a common thread through the, each of the winners of this, this show, Big Brother, like how did you possibly survive when people are stabbing each other in the back, people are telling lies behind each other's back? It's usually because there's always a divide that exists in the house, there's one side, there's another side that are against each other, and the person that typically wins the show is the person who knows how to play both sides. They're the person that becomes the bridge in the middle. They're the person that, man, builds relationship with these people over here, but also equally builds relationship with these people over here. That by the end of it, when these people that are, feel really stabbed in the back, they end up becoming the jury and get to vote whether the person wins or not. But it's interesting, because the person who typically wins isn't the person that finds themselves on the extreme over here calling out the other side about everything they're doing wrong. The extreme over here on this side, calling out the other side about everything they're wrong. It's the person who finds himself in the middle who has common ground and pulls people in. Just like Jesus did with people who are far from God. There was a gap in between and Jesus chose to pull together the gap between God and humanity. And friends, this morning, we are called to be the bridge people, the people that do the same. The people that find common ground with the division that exists what an opportunity for bridge makers to take us forward and seeing the goodness of God begin to transform communities, cities, culture. What an opportunity. But it starts with us understanding when Jesus prioritizes go, we got to do it with the posture of finding common ground with anybody and everybody. Amen? If you're a person you've ever been irked by, by this conversation and talking about followers of Jesus... Jesus wasn't into separating. He wasn't. That critique lined up with how God sees the world isn't one that holds up. But it falls on the responsibility of his followers. Jesus wasn't into separating. He was into bringing people together. 
was. Number two, let's keep going here. Avoid a know-it-all attitude. Come on now. KC from Fresno, he says, whenever I'm approached by an evangelist, by a Christian missionary, I know I'm up against someone so obsessed and narrowly focused that it will do me absolutely no good to try and explain or share my own value system. I never want to be rude to them, of course, but never have any idea how to respond to their attempts to convert me. In short order, I inevitably find myself simply feeling embarrassed first for them, then for us both. I'm always grateful when such encounters conclude. Sometimes people feel as if they can't even get a sentence in. Sometimes followers of Jesus make people feel, well, let me take this truth that is God, and rather than applying it to the vehicle of love, let me beat you with it a little bit, right? Let's see, 1 Corinthians, I feel like, chapter 8, really illustrates this very well. 1 Corinthians 8, 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. I like the way NLT phrases it better. It says this, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. That's God. That's Jesus. That's the one on behalf of the Christian church informing the church, don't think you know everything because you don't. So when we be people that act and take the posture that we know everything, you know what we're doing? We're not really being followers of Jesus. We're being followers of our own ego. We're being followers of our own arrogance. We're being followers of the thing that Jesus is actually trying to get the things to die in our lives so that we can serve other people. Ignorance is bliss for you. It's only bliss for you. Because whether you like it or not, you have influence and you affect people. And if you continue to live your life in ignorance, it will continue to affect other people. Ignorance is only bliss for you. And God is trying to get us to be aware of that. Where is our ignorance in God's love and his mission? And how do we flip that around and begin to use it in a posture where we serve other people? Don't be that guy or that girl who convinces himself or herself that you are God. Don't be the guy who has a God complex and has to tell everyone else what they need to do. The phrase, I don't know, should be in each and every person's vocabulary. You're not God. You don't know everything. It's okay to take a posture of humility and say, I don't know. I believe humility is the best medicine for hypocrisy. I believe it in all my heart. Where people yell hypocrisy, it's typically out of a place because they've felt that they've been condescended against. They've been belittled. Their opinion doesn't matter. It's okay to be people that say, I don't know. You know what Bible college taught me? Bible college, what I would call the icing on the cake of Christian faith in terms of, this isn't, it's not primary. It's kind of like, hey, this is an area of my life I'm going to be really focused in in pastoral leadership. This will be the icing on the cake. You know what? I, the more and more I investigated the depths of the Bible, took classes on in, in breaking down the Bible, all these things. You know what it taught me? I don't know very much. Because the more you get to know a great God, the more you dig into relationship with him, Bible college or not, you have a relationship, you dig in, you realize how great he is, you realize how great you're not. You realize how limited your knowledge is, you realize how unlimited his knowledge is. Kelly and I were just even talking about the Bible 
the other day, we're, we found a parallel that we've never seen before in our lives. Common story in the Bible and paralleled with the story of Jesus. And it just, it was like a light bulb came on. And for me, I'm going, there's different authors, there's different poetry, there's different types of literature throughout this library that we call the Bible. Isn't God grand? No human could have conducted what is concluded in this book that is a love letter to God's people, his humanity. Man, the more we investigate God, the more the humility should rise over our lives where we realize, man, there's no reason to be condescending. There's no reason to be arrogant. There's no one reason to be a person who thinks they know better than anyone else. And the Bible actually gives us practical instruction not to be those very people. If you're a person that you've ever felt like you've been condescended against maybe this morning, you relate to that. You relate on a level of that person who wrote in about this is how I feel. It's valid. And Jesus does not import all the answers to every question about life ever into a person's brain when they make the decision to follow Jesus. He doesn't do that. But that's good because it leaves room for God to be God. It leaves room for us to know our role in the midst of God's greatness. Our role to point people to God to be God. Not point people for pastor to be God. For person with grand ideas about God to be God. For somebody who's trying to reach somebody in the name of Jesus to act like they have all the answers and the other person does not. Completely contrary to God's mission and his grace that he offers. We are not called to be know-it-all people and we need to ditch that attitude because we do not represent God's glory to the world. Amen? Number three, this is going to be helpful. Make people feel accepted. Here we go. E.S. Denver writes, the main thing that baffles and angers me about Christians is how they can understand so little about human nature that when in their fervor to convert another person, they tell that person, as they inevitably do, in one way or another, you're bad and wrong and evil, they actually expect that person to agree with them. It pretty much guarantees that virtually the only people Christians can ever realistically hope to convert are those with tragically low self-esteem. Ooh. Are we in the room because this is the only option left? Are we? I, 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 I'd argue that we're better than that. That we're people, we actually want to see God's transformation, and we want to see great things come out of our lives. But that takes effort towards being people that are fueled by God's mission, that actually maybe know how to make some people around them feel accepted rather than judged. Romans 15, 5 through 7 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You know what brings praise to God? You know what's worship to God? When you accept somebody just like Christ has accepted you. You know that perfect person that you're like, that's why God chose me. Nope, he chose you in your worst moment. He chose you when you were down and out. He accepted you. He gave you a new posture. He implanted his grace and power within you. And God says each and every person should feel that same oozing of acceptance out of our life as we follow the plan that Jesus has. The Bible argues for a different perspective than 
some people might be feeling. I hit on this a lot, but we got a lot of people babbling about views on Facebook. We're going to keep talking about it. I, 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 read, I listened to this podcast the other day. It was hilarious. There's a guy marketing. He's talking about marketing. One of the top marketing guys. He's done marketing for Dave Ramsey. He's like the, you know, Christian finance guy. He's done marketing for, for Oprah. He's done marketing for the, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the guy's name. He's the guy like does this program where you walk on fire. Tony Robbins. Okay. He's done marketing for all these like big guys. Like, like these guys are really successful. Like you got to admit, this is success, right? This guy was just talking about marketing related to church, right? And, he, and the, the, the guy who's interviewing him was like, well, for churches, like, like, what are some ways churches are missing it when it comes to marketing? Like, what not to do? Just give me one big thing. You know what he said? He said, people lose their minds on the internet. People lose their minds on the internet. What becomes real life, what becomes normal life, what becomes normal human interaction, we get behind a keyboard and a screen and we lose our minds. Church, if you actually want to benefit this world and make a difference, don't lose your mind when you get behind that computer screen. Don't cut off the people that God's called you to accept. Do not create reasons to point out what you don't like about that person when you can begin to be a person of influence and speak life and hope into that person. People lose their minds. And it's so intriguing because it's so true. What restaurant that wants a new customer sends you an email and tells you what they don't like about you as a customer? I get emails all the time, you guys. In normal life, this is how this works. I, there's a business, wants my business, wants me as a customer. Hey, Chili's, thank you. You sent me an email this week about how I get some free chips and salsa. I might actually make a decision to go get those this week and give money to your business. But the church, we start translating. Well, we're just going to tell everybody how hellish they are. On our Facebook, we're going to send that email, and then we're like, well, why isn't anybody showing up to church on Sundays? Because it's distant from real life. That's not real life. Stop losing your mind on the internet. Stop it. Because I can just guarantee you this. In the digital disruption we're seeing in the day and age that we live in, you will not be fruitful in doing the things that Jesus called you to do. You won't. You're cutting the leg off an opportunity. You're cutting the arm off the opportunity. You're cutting the head off an opportunity to be a person of influence, to bring and speak life and hope. Are you with me this morning? <laughs> I don't think I need to believe that anymore. If you're a person in the room, you've ever felt unaccepted, that's not how you're supposed to be feeling. That's not the God who I worship. The God who I worship accepts accepted me at my worst hour, accepted me when I was imperfect, accepted me when I didn't have everything going on in the right direction of my life, accepted me. And the amazing thing about the God that I worship, he is the model. He did that, he demonstrated it, and he gave his life for each and every person to live and breathe on this earth. Number four, keep going. Be sensitive to needs and Concerns. Okay. Let's read another one of these. 
for like the punching bag this morning. Come on, we can take it. I am a former born-again Christian. It's been in my personal experience that Christians treat the poor poorly, much like the Pharisees did in the parable of the old woman and the two coins. I found the church to be political to a fault, and its individual members all too happy to judge and look down on others. As a Christian, my own fervor to witness was beyond healthy. My friends would come to me to vent and express emotions, and all I would do is preach to them. I was of no real comfort to them. I never tried to see anything from their perspective. Romans 12 is really going to help us out with this one. Romans 12, 15 through 16 says this. This is really helpful. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. People aren't stupid. When you are doing something as a duty, rather than out of the generosity of your own heart, people are not idiotic enough to notice and to know and to feel it. What's interesting about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he submitted himself to a process to live and experience what it meant to be a human being. And for some of us in the room, we got like these high expectations of what it means to follow God. But we're really called to be people that live authentic life. Do not be exclusive. I love our vision for our church. It's simply this, family matters, right? And I love it because I feel like people can relate to that. Because like Oklahoma culture, like we're all about like family. Like, we're like, we prioritize family. But here's where we get into trouble. Is when family, our little family, becomes exclusive of its own. To a point where we never let anybody in. Because God, what God sees as a family is a family called his church that functions together. That doesn't isolate this tight-knit family of, man, I got something going on. And just say, well, this, that's it. It's just for us. Just for us to participate in. Just for us to experience. Just for us to re experience relational intimacy. And then when my family wants to go on a missions trip or to serve, we can feel all warm and fuzzy about the mission that we accomplished. No. The mission is in the fact that you take the family that you've learned and identified, you make other people's family. You will live life with them. You have intimate conversations with them. You open your doors to them. You make those people feel like family to a point where, guess what, when they're mourning, they actually come to you and have a shoulder to cry on. When they're rejoicing, you're celebrating with them. We've gotten very individualistic with our family. And God is calling us to break those barriers down. And man, pull people in. Do life with people. When we go, we are called to be people that come down. Once again, not like Jesus did, that you could claim that he just showed up on the scene, started laying hands on people's foreheads, knocking people down, healing people, doing miracles. No, he showed up, went through a process lived with people. The message says he came into the neighborhood. He grew in relationship, deep relationship with several different people, honored people in the moment, heard their needs, heard the cries of their heart and their soul, and he ministered to those things. It wasn't a show. It wasn't some spectacle to attend or to see, but he literally saw people to them and intimately spent that time in a rich relationship in the same way that when we make a decision to follow Jesus, man, there's a really rich relationship at our disposal. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to engage in it. But God's calling us to engage in the life of Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Live life with others. If you're a person in the room, 
you felt like you were a project more than a person, Jesus is a God of transformation, not transaction. People aren't your little project pet. Our neighborhood, when we do events, when we do Kids Fest, that's not our pet. Those are people. We're called to invest in. We're called to stop, have conversation with. We're called to stop, to invest in. We're called to put it down, look somebody in the eyes, give them dignity and respect. We're called to be those types of people because that's where transformation happens, not transaction. We've got we to rid the lie of transaction within the church. Numbers, this, that, no, no, no. Numbers give us measure, but numbers is not what we do. It's good to see how we're being fruitful, but the posture of going is one where we go deep with people. We go intimate with people. We get in people's lives to a point where we hear about the rejoicing in the morning. If we're not even hearing those things, how deep are we truly going outside of the depth of some of our closest relationships? Whew. Calling us to go out. Last but not least, number five, look for opportunities to share hope. Shoreline, Washington. Washington, my home state. Hallelujah. Come on. Praise God. A guy wrote, I wish Christians would resist their aggressive impulses to morph others into Christians. Didn't Jesus preach that we should all love one another? I love this. What is the approach? What does this look like? First Peter 3, I think, gives the best model in terms of looking for opportunities to share hope. Number five, look up for opportunities to share hope. Sorry, skip that. First uh, Peter 3, 13 through 16 says this. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Suffering ain't a bad thing. Come on, Christians. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always. Not sometimes, not when I'm not on Facebook, not when it's convenient. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There's a little posture in, in information, but do this with gentleness and respect. I think we're seeing a theme this morning. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed for their slander. Be the bigger person. Be more like Jesus. Be more sacrificial, where maybe your sacrifice points out the selfishness that runs rampant in our culture. Be that person and look for those opportunities to share hope. When I was living in Burbank, California, you know, it's like a big media capital of the world. So, like, you just, like, would go do anything, and you're, like, matched up with greatness. So it was, like, we had stuff, you know, it was, like, stuff, you know, audio equipment breaks down or whatever. So we're having to get this stuff fixed. We would have audio equipment break down. In this little hole-in-the-wall shop, the guy that I would bring it to, it's like, hey, I need my speaker fixed or whatever. Like, the dude is the same guy who, like, worked on Eddie Van Halen's, like, stage rack mount. You know what I mean? It's like... Dude is a legend. Like, this is the behind-the-scenes guy that made one of the greatest guitarists of all time sound good. It's like, I can't just go anywhere without just, like, it's somebody, right? 
And I'll never forget it. It was just like, I'm in awe of this guy. Like, this guy's so legendary. He's got, like, a signed Eddie Van Halen, like, poster on the wall with just, like, Eddie and his, like, guitar pose, like, long hair. You know, I was like, this guy is so cool. Like, that, this guy's the guy who set him up to look that cool, you know? So we, I constantly go in there, and it was like, over time, it was just like, I just felt the Lord being like, man, like, look for an opportunity. You know what I'm saying? Like, start looking for an opportunity because it was like, we would hit, off, hit it off. It's like, dude, this guy's got interests that I got. We're finding common ground together. Man, this guy is so cool to me. And he was this, he, he, he's this Jewish guy who's like super like distant from the idea of church. Like, what is church, you know? So it's like, within the first few visits, it's like, well, this is for a church, you know, we pay it, oh, here's the transaction for the church, you know what I mean? It's like, well, what do you do at the church? So he starts asking questions, you know? And like over time, it was like, I felt like the door just kept getting wider and wider and wider. And I say this to say, the end of this story isn't one where it's like, and then I laid my hands on him and we spoke the sinner's prayer under the formulaic transformation of Jesus that can only be submitted through, through five specific words in a prayer. That's not what happened. What happened was, a man who was distant from the idea of Jesus began to gain trust through a relationship, and the door of his life and the way he operated and was open to Jesus slowly began to get bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where I, I built up the courage to be like, dude, you should come check it out sometime. Come check out the fruit of your labor, man. We've been working really hard to get our music sounding good. We've been working really hard, man. We've been using, we believe that what you do for us is a huge blessing into what God's plans have for this world. We believe that you have a place in it. And man, we've never had that moment. Is the dude a Christian today? I don't know. But guess what? My job is to not be God. My job is to be the person that plants seeds, has dignity and respect for another human being, and when the opportunity comes, guess what? There might be that opportunity for transformation there, then and there. But I love it because I remember walking away from this, walking away from the season of my life, and I feel like the Lord was like, you did enough. You did enough. Because my life was a signpost towards him. Not me trying to be God, but we got to look for the opportunities. We got to be sensitive to the opportunities. Man, we got we to gotta use gentleness and respect. It's got to be out of a place where people actually begin to trust you in your life. We're all messed up. But man... If your life's messed up on display for somebody to see all the time and it's never getting better, no one's going to ever ask good advice about what actually causes your life to head in the trajectory towards the goodness and the heavenly power of God. We've got to look for those opportunities. We've got to leverage them in a way that invites other people into the story that God has for humanity. Amen? We're ending this series this morning, you guys, and we could summarize what the series was based on, the great things that God prioritized, two main categories, what we would call his great commandment. We talked about those the first couple weeks, to love God, to love people. And then this week we're talking about the great commandment, called to be people that go, that make disciples. We got to be people that just are willing to go first. And it's interesting, throughout church history, churches have gotten really messed up when they lean one, far, one way too far or the other. When they begin to prioritize one of those things more than the other. What do I mean by that? You can easily say, well, I'm all about the mission. I'm all about going. And before you know it, when you're so informed by going without the greatest commandment, 
you can become a very callous, abrasive person that's all about go, 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 that you forget that you're not even leading with the posture of love. The church over church history has gotten into trouble. You can read church history and see this when one of these got prioritized more than the other. You could be a person that you're all about the great commandment to love God and love people. But it's so, it's such a center of loving and it's so deep that it never actually expresses itself outside of the intimacy of your own inner circle. Because it never goes anywhere. But we are called to be people that live in the tension of the great commandment and the great commission. And I'm here to say this morning, I can't police what other churches are doing. It's not my job. But you know what we can actually take charge in? The Bible says, if you're faithful with little, I will give you more. We are going to be a church that's committed to finding the grace and the tension between those two great things. Because that's the church that God is calling for us to be. A church in action. A church that isn't distant from what's going on in the world, but a church that finds opportunity Anytime something that doesn't represent God go bad, it's an opportunity to go deep and to reach into people's lives and speak hope and speak fullness of God's grace and his power and what he's capable of doing, not only in our lives, but off of, based off of what he's doing in our lives, invite people into that very story that God has for them. Can we be committed as a church to do that, to find that grace, to find that tension? Amen.